To the thrumming stars, the scrim of daybreak, she takes her name. From her father's mouth, her mother's chest, she lifts it. They call you legend. They call you brave, but history can't hold your name. When they say your name, Langeli, they say it wide-eyed. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we offer you a definitely 100% not poisoned apple and watch you very intently as you take the first bite. We've assembled some brilliant poets and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations. Stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by R.A. Villanueva and Fatima Zara. Uh, hello, both of you. Good morning. Hi. Hello. Hi. R.A. Villanueva is the author of Reliquaria, uh, published in 2014 by the University of Nebraska Press. And he's the winner of the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. Fatima Zara is an Indian poet based in Essex. She's a Barbican Young poet and a Roundhouse Poetry Collective alum. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in Slam, you're going to want to hear this, Kidder Magazine and Tentacular Magazine. Kicking us off today is Ron. Uh, What story have you got for us? I chose the story of Penelope from The Odyssey, the poem by Homer. Mm. Could you give us a little bit of a (laughs) rundown, match highlights for people who might not be totally up? Yes, yes, yes. So The Odyssey is the story of Penelope's husband in his return back from the Trojan War. It takes him, he he travels out from Ithaca where he is king and she is queen. He travels out for, because of various responsibilities and duties and oaths, travels out, fights in the Trojan War, and then takes 10 years to get back home. This kind of circuitous adventure back and forth across the islands. And all the while, his wife, Penelope, is at home pushing back uh, this onslaught from her various responsibilities at home, both as a mother and as a queen, and all of these suitors who are eating their way like locusts through <laughs> the stuff that, uh, through through her estate and her son's inheritance. And um, in the past, she's been seen as, or cast as this very virtue. I mean, she is virtue, right? Like she stays faithful. She stays true. She um, doesn't court any of the suitors who are courting her. She raises her son. And all the while, Odysseus is out sleeping with minor goddesses and, you know, killing a cyclops and doing all these things. And she's at home. As you do. As, as one does. And she's maintaining the household. And as I thought more and more about it, I was really thinking about how did we reckon with her place in the story? Her son, Telemachus at one point decides to leave home as well to search for his father. That's much of the the beginning of the book uh, of the poem, excuse me, is uh, devoted to what's called a telemachy, which is his kind of searching for his father. Uh, But I was drawn to Penelope because my daughter's name is Penelope. And my wife and I named our daughter in some ways after not just the virtue, this kind of archetypal virtue of what a woman should be, but because of her cleverness. Part of the poem is that Uh, She promises the suitors that she will choose who she will marry when she finishes this shroud she's been weaving. Uh, And what they don't know is that at night she unravels the shroud. So she weaves this beautiful shroud. And and then at the end of the night, she she slowly frays it as a way of, of, of holding them off and staving them off. 
And so my wife and I love that part of the story. And as our daughter grows up, she's about 17 months old now, we realize that there's a part of her that is so mischievous and so reckless and so rebellious. And it feels like intention with the myth. And so I was really drawn to what people assume Penelope is or who she is and the Penelope that's right now probably throwing graham crackers and yogurt all over our couch. And so that's that's <laughs> that's why I chose this myth. <laughs> uh, I, the one thing I will say about this as uh, before we begin to is I had wholly intended for us to return to the, the present day. Mm. But as I wrote this poem, the poem kind of took over. Uh, and, and so the poem is called Epithalamian Ithaca, and it imagines Penelope, Homer's Penelope, or the Penelope of, of the past uh, on the night or the day before her wedding day to Odysseus, the man who would bring her mm. so much love, but also so much grief and, and sorrow. Fabulous. Epithalamian Ithaca. Tell of the bride girl thinking of threadwork. Dreaming of coronals, eagles, and ducks, staring out to the sea. Morning after morning, touching her throat, counting the veins of her wrists, bracing for earthquakes. Sing of snail shells dipped in wine in boiled figs, stacked in the stillness of a bedchamber, painted with wax. That we know oracles gladly lie will not keep us from asking, so she asks into the dregs, into the blush and warp of sunrise. What will become of me? And the everything replies with corners amid omens, dead bees, three torn veils, rain, handmaids dressing burns, laughing into cups. There, past a grove of olive trees, a copse of poplar, cypress, past the tall fires and offering stones, the oxen and cliff face and potter's kilns, look, his stables and storerooms of lavender, axe heads, wild goat cured with thyme. See, there, his oarsmen flexing their legs, oiling their backs. See, ship's masts lashed with laurels, carved with owls, the pitch thick, dark growing dark upon each hull, and the sails broad, blooming, like a field of clouds falling in love with the tide. Down the corridor, someone is peeling citrus, sharpening their knives. Someone tunes strings, readies the dye for feathers, while she hums, braiding her hair. To the thrumming stars, the scrim of daybreak, she takes her name. From her father's mouth, her mother's chest, she lifts it and breathes free, each syllable as if weaving in smoke who she was before their promises, before his oaths, his vows and signet rings, his hands around hers like a shroud. Penelope, she calls. Remembering how these last weeks she would wade among low reeds, listening for the weightless drift of wings, awake to gods of her own making. A universe, luminous and spinning, reaching out its voice to meet hers, without secrets or grief, only tenderness beyond surrender. Beyond the wrecks, 
beyond her grace and faith, wound true then unraveling in turns, tears, battlements, arrowheads, and the harbor watch, beyond porticos and spiderwebs, beyond daughter or queen, mother or wife. Penelope, alone, counts juniper berries, presses them down with her thumb, tests a smile. Dare to imagine her happy, alive among all trembling miracles, bright with unruly gifts. Soon the phantoms and thieves will circle. Soon the carrion birds and soothsayers' drums and every small catastrophe laced with joy. But for now, she keeps dear her heart, holds it far from dawn. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that. I'm so curious as to what drew you to this moment in particular, or should I say what drew the poem to this moment in particular of the before the wedding night? I don't know. I think because in the process of taking part in this project, we had a day of generative work uh, where we all just kind of gathered and did some writing exercises and generated some work. And the story of the Odyssey is one that I'm familiar with. I studied in high school and at university, and it's one that like I've read many, I've read many, many translations of. And I think growing up, you, you know, and I went to an all boys high school. So I think you gravitate immediately to the warrior, to the the person who's in the title. <laughs> and as I've grown older, as I think more and more about the world that I live in, the world that I'm trying to survive and the world that I'm trying to survive with my children, with my wife, with my family, I was drawn to her, uh, to Penelope. And as we thought about what we were going to name our daughter, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever, I started reading uh, the new translation by Emily Wilson of, of the Odyssey, which is billed and, and, and spotlighted, uh, spotlit, spot highlighted <laughs> uh, as the first translation in English by a woman scholar. And she, in her introduction, talks a great deal about who Penelope is, how, how we gloss over her, and, and how all of these male scholars um, not take her for granted, but in the choices that they make in, in rendering her, there are things about her character, things about her as a person that are um, simplified mm. or muted. And so this this wedding day for me was the day where it's this massive volta in her life. She was wed to this this king. She would become all she would assume all of these responsibilities and titles. And I was thinking a great deal about what was her life like on this day and before. Uh, I read also Margaret Atwood's uh, the Penelope ad, uh, which which imagines both Penelope and the maids in the story and their lives. And so the wedding day just became this kind of like action point for me where what is happening on this day where everything will shift and change. What is happening at this dawn? You know, in the Odyssey, there's so much talk of the dawn. And so what is happening at this moment? And so the poem kind of took over from that. It was trying to, to depict her and honor her and celebrate her at this moment where things were going to shift in really huge, massive, tectonic, 
ways for, for this, for this young girl. And I wanted to imagine her happy. I wanted her before, because, because, you know, we know what's going to happen. We know her future. She at this moment does not. And I wanted to, I don't know, let some flowers bloom around this really amazing point in her life. And also to kind of speak to the fact that she doesn't need her husband. <laughs> she never did. She never did. It's funny setting it up as this precious still point in time before things collapse mm. into catastrophe it has this, almost the cadence of a horror movie where you can see the ghost approaching yeah. through the dark corridor towards our completely oblivious hero. And I was so struck by the line, soon the carrion birds and soothsayers drums and every small catastrophe laced with joy. Could you tell me a bit more about that thought? I suppose it has a lot to do with the fact of the reality of dramatic irony in a, in a poem like this. In a poem like this, I mean the word this in plural. I mean this poem that I tried to make and also the poem that we inherit from Homer, whoever Homer was, and, and that tradition, is, is that after this day, we know what's going to happen next. Very soon, she will have a son. Very soon, her husband will have to depart for two decades to fight and then make his way home in a way that she hears is about love, that he says to various people along the trip, I miss home. I want to be home. But there is a kind of disparity between what he does when he's away and what she is doing when she is there in Ithaca. And so there, near the ending of the poem, there are two lines that begin with the word soon. And it felt like it was ominous. There is something about the future that she has no idea about that we do. That there is some kind of upheaval that is on the horizon. But it felt really important for me always to weave in, forgive the Penelope pun, weave in um, <laughs> Very nicely done. this notion of, of things being laced with joy. <laughs> things being laced with joy always. Like I think in all of our moments of, of grief in our life, and I, I was thinking about our world and, and my own life, um, my own family, in all the kinds of mourning that we have, all the elegies that we write and live out, there are these glimpses and flashes of the celebratory, the memorial, the the odes that power the things that we do. And so those last lines near the ending of the poem, we know there's going to be catastrophe. We know that there is going to be joy uh, braided into that catastrophe. She doesn't know that yet. So for now, I wanted the camera to linger on this brilliant young woman uh, who has her whole life ahead of her, who doesn't know what, what is ahead of her. Both of your poems speak so strongly about the loaded and powerful ways in which we remember women. And I was wondering, Zara, like, how do you respond to Penelope as a figure? I think I really resonate with what Ron said about trying to imagine the joy and trying to imagine almost a different atmosphere for her because that was something I was trying to do in my poem as well. And Penelope to me wasn't a figure I was familiar with before, you know, our conversations. And because of the connection, you know, with 
Ron's daughter as well, it's it's become such an animated figure in my head as opposed to, I think, what I would have encountered in literature. I would love to pass over to your poem at this, this little moment, Sarah. So what have you chosen to rewrite for us? So I've chosen the village legend of Nangeli. She's um, an Erva woman in early 19th century Kerala. She's mainly known for her act of resistance against the breast tax that was there at the time. And the poem starts from the event of her chopping off her breasts in response to or in retaliation of this. Could you just give us a little clue as to what the breast tax was, what it involved? So at the time, there was a general tax on all um, lower caste people in Kerala. And for the men, it was called the head tax, whereas for the women, it was called breast tax. And there's dispute as to whether, you know, the breast tax was so the women could cover themselves up. And there's dispute if that's just a matter of naming and that's just a matter of like differentiating the tax. And at the time, the women didn't cover themselves up. But nevertheless, there was such a tax and... There was this one instance where she refused to pay it and the tax collector kept insisting at which point, you know, she chopped off her breasts and handed it to him. She died from the blood loss, but the tax was later changed um, and a part of the land was renamed after her in honour of this act. Wow, powerful. I would love to hear your version. Nangeli, a rebirth story. Final moments. She raised her sight like she had countless times. Her hands faltered, her hands steady. When she shouted in his face, his eyes slid to disgust. The same mouth that once whistled or dirtied her name now screaming. Her neighbors rush in, all manners of screaming anguish. The sky turns red in the face of their shouts. They hold her. No one should go down alone. Leave my name in the mouths of mothers and grandmothers. Someone rushes to tell her mum. A mother's prayer. A ma's scream pierces the sky. Hands shaking as she gathers her daughter. She knows the stillness. The eyes unmoving. She calls her name o'er and o'er like summoning a god. The rains rage louder for her loss. Her words form missives launched to the heavens. They don't wait for clear skies or messenger, running straight to the gods' ears, calls them away from their siesta, their feasts. A grieving mother requests the audience. Her daughter's blood rusts the earth. They follow the sounds of cries like clay pots clanging, descend into the darkness. The women have left, each holding a piece of her grief. Their hands are not enough. Under the thatched roof of her house, she feels their presence before she hears them. Her voice will not waver. Nangeli, she begins, my daughter, my only daughter. A great wind holds her hut in its palm. Protected from the neighbor's watchful eyes or reaching ears, she aims her words like a hunter. Unimpressed by these gods who had been asleep to her prayers or plight, she makes her case. 
Do you know the curse of living when your child has died? All I'm asking is for a second chance. Moved by the tale, the plea, they flick their hands. Your daughter will be reborn to live a full life. Only a scar for a medal. No promise of when or where, they leave the newly unmothered alone. Don't say gods don't have a sense of humor. Bangalore, 1999. The hospital drowned in a power cut. Doctors working by flashlight. It's a girl, someone exclaims. Gloves, scissors, a flurry of hands before she's handed to the mother. In the daylight, they mutter about the lightning scars on the baby's chest. A nurse recommends a priest. Someone else tells the mother of Ayurvedic cures. Offering answers to questions the new mom didn't ask, they pack her home. Childhood. Love child of the monsoons and the gulmohar. You couldn't pick her out in a sea of uniformed children or on the bus. The same little beauty in her face, nothing that alerts you to the presence of gods or mischief. Mothering her is learning to resist her doleful eyes and endless requests. Her laughter catches in the wind, sings back to her. Even as she runs with the children in her neighborhood, their voices fill the streets. When a fight breaks out, no one sees the little fists or the slurs that started it. Only her crying face. The pigeons look on indifferent. When death comes, remember this too. When the revolution comes, she packs a t-shirt, two packets of biscuits and a water bottle. One could be fooled if it weren't for the placard screaming red and blue. On the phone to Amma, her rage softens. Yes, I ate. I had, and for dinner. I was in my room all day, I swear. What did you, how is, I'll be home. At the park, gulmohers are shredding, a thick carpet of fallen flowers. She meets her friend and boyfriend at their chosen spot, each other's alibi, each turn to poet and artist spent the night painting these placards. The last time she leaves a hostel room to sit in the streets, lend her voice to the chorus of chants, she turns before she locks the door. Questions. Did you smell jasmine or sandalwood? Was it Amma's voice that delivered you to sleep? The same one that promised you of an ant bite worth of pain when they pierced your ears? Held your hand as she cried too? They call you legend. They call you brave, but history can't hold your name. Did heaven carry the news of the changed law? Did you think of your love lost? 
When they say your name, Nangeli, they say it wide-eyed. There's a rhythm to this life. Live your life as the fine print dictates. Delete free thought. Delete dissent. Learn to say no only to the quiet of your house. Thank you. That was completely gorgeous. What's the figure of Nandeli mean for you? I've come across her story so many times um, in the past and I think I first came across her when I was in school. She was just like a footnote in our history textbook, just like a little box. And as soon as I left school, even that was removed, uh, what little of her story was there. And I remember two years ago, I came across her story again when I had a little breast cancer scare and it turned out to be nothing. But I remember her figure coming to mind again and again and just thinking of what that act meant and this idea of femininity being tied um, to your body and how you present and things like that. So, yeah, I, th- I think I've been obsessed since. And in the past year, I've just been questioning the idea of who makes up the story of home. I grew up with my mom telling me stories from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and stories from the Quran. And, you know, hers isn't the story that comes up when you say the story of home. And I think I've been questioning that. And she's been turning up ever since. And when you're talking about her story, you tell it through the lens of rebirth. And there seems to be a lot of resonance between ideas of rebirth and resistance. And I'm, I'm so curious to know more about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think with the stories that my mom used to tell me, uh, they all had the literary tropes of rebirth and reincarnation a lot. And this negotiation with the gods, especially the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And I grew up watching uh, TV series of those, whether in animation or in real life. And one of the things that stuck with me is that even if a death happened, it wasn't final. And there was some form of returning or them returning the spirit, if not as human, as an animal or a different form. And I think that kept returning to me in thinking of her story. What was it like writing about something that, although it's part of legend, is also rooted in some fairly recent history that gets routinely co-opted, erased, misremembered? I'm so flabbergasted by the fact that even her footnote was removed within your lifetime yeah I think I'm, I'm, I was struck by the silence and it's it's definitely a kind of systemic erasure it's the deliberate act of removing her story and stories of others like her who stood up to the state and I think to me it's a familiar story of a kind of you know place deciding what its narrative is and the people who get to be a part of that narrative and you know, the people who do push back against that, the people who do stand up, they do get sidelined when you do end up writing the history or in choosing whose stories get told. And I think I wanted to enact some form of that silence in my poem, but without, I guess, reenacting the violence of the state. Mm. There seems to be so many resonances between Penelope and Nangeli, even being from completely different cultural traditions, literary traditions, thousands of miles apart. And I'm wondering what you both make of it. I'm going to go to Ron first. There was a a moment 
a couple of weeks ago where Zara and I actually met up on Zoom. We had exchanged drafts and we were both stuck or felt stuck or felt as if we wanted each other to to look and listen to where we were at the moment. Um, and I think that that conversation opened up this portal into all these other conversations happening in the myths. So there was this very, this fascinating kind of panel discussion across the two of us who were really wrestling with doing justice to or honoring or shining um, a heart fraught light on these, on these figures, these women. And then there was also this feeling that the, the, the people who were at the core of our poems in progress, in flux, were also there with us. And what we had were these uh, f- like just really provocative and emotional rhymes across across the narratives. We had uh, the community that was pressuring them or, or in- imposing some kind of expectation upon who they were supposed to be, how they were supposed to act. We had um, family who also brought with them all of these associations of how they were supposed to fit into or embody or perform their responsibilities to the world. Uh, and then we also had the spiritual aspect, right? Like the gods that were hovering and haunting and directing the people around them and maybe even exerting some kind of influence on them. And then we had the women, Penelope and Nangeli at the center of things, at the heart of things, who were not in sync with, and and consciously not in sync with what the system said they were supposed to be doing. And I think there was this really gorgeous kind of (laughs) cascade of epiphanies that we had on that Saturday morning. We talked for a long while. Um, This cascade of epiphanies about that was what our work was trying to be. And that's a, that's a big responsibility for us, right? Like we're trying to do the ethical thing. We're trying to celebrate and praise and really listen to what was happening in what was being erased and what was being uh, remembered. And our poems, I think, I believe, I hope, are trying to, to kind of speak to that. We have women who are with their whole bodies, with their whole spirits, pushing back against what they were instructed to do. And that's a, that's a, that's a powerful echo. That's a powerful resonance reverberation. I think too, there's also this feeling that names are really important. They want their names to be at the forefront in a way that perhaps history, the myth, the story, the fairy tale, the cautionary tale of all of this has not. I mean, Penelope is not even a, in the title, it's it's her husband who is the title, right? And even the first couple of books where her son is out searching for her husband has been given this name called the Telemachy in various scholars' work and, and respondents' work. But there isn't really a name for Penelope's um, struggle, uh, worry. And so I think my poem, as inflected by Penelope's namesake, my daughter, and and what I hope for her in her life I think is in conversation with, uh, is extending um, what Zara is doing in in her poem, like trying to imagine, trying to envision alternatives, trying to imagine a different angle of approach in, and a different way to 
lift, to lift up with full-throated voice the power of these women. Mm-hmm. And Zara? Yeah, I think with with the stories, I'm struck um, by the parallels in the kind of reimagining that takes place in mine. I wanted to imagine her story beyond what little I could find of her and what little I knew of her. Um, and I wanted to bring some form of joy and love into this into the reimagining um, because what little is said is just of that one event and yeah just just trying to imagine the people in her life as well and bringing it to today's story and like drawing parallels to I guess the protests happening back home and seeing her spirit in the people that are still standing standing up to the government I could talk to you guys about mutiny and duty and mythical ladies for the rest of my life quite frankly but tragically desperately that is probably where we're going to have to leave it with the current rebels reincarnating Nangeli's spirit thank you so much to our wonderful guests our Evelyn Waver and Fatima Zara this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World I've been your host Eleanor Penny and until next time Sweet dreams, and thanks for listening. This has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew, and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.